uh, Ezekiel chapter 20. We return to our series on Ezekiel, and we'll be in Ezekiel back again for the next several weeks, at least through chapter 24. The plan is to take another short break when we get there uh, with another short series from a New Testament book, as we did with Luke chapters 1 and 2 very recently. So going forward, uh, at least in the beginning part of the year, we'll alternate between Ezekiel and uh, study from a New Testament. It's been seven weeks since we are in this book, so let me remind you of the context. Ezekiel is ministering among the exiled community of God's people in Babylon uh, just a few years before the fall of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. And the people had been brought there in 597 B.C. with King Jehoiachin in the initial deportation. So the book of Ezekiel is really dated from that time. And the time reference in our passage puts it in August 591 B.C. And that is two years after Ezekiel's initial call from God and a year after uh, he had seen that vision of the temple in Jerusalem and the glory of God departing from the temple in chapters 8 through 10. Well, since then, Ezekiel's been employing various parables and images in chapters 11 through 19, such as the exile's baggage, the useless vine, the faithless, adulterous wife, the two eagles, and so forth, chapter after chapter. However, the message has been the same. God's judgment is coming upon Jerusalem, but also there is mercy. There is the glorious hope of salvation. And that brings us this morning to our passage in Ezekiel chapter 20. Again, this is a year after the last dated block of material in chapters 9 through uh, 8 through 19. We'll read the first 44 verses in Ezekiel 20. Again, um, this is uh, August, five, August 591 B.C. As you'll see, this is quite a long passage, and by my counting, it'll take about eight to nine minutes to read uh, so that I don't lose you in the middle of the reading. Just let just know that it has essentially two parts. Uh, through verse 31, the first three-quarter of the passage, God is going to review the history of his people from Egypt to the present day, essentially in three phrases. Three phases, and whether they were in, the, in bondage in Egypt or whether they were wandering in the wilderness, or whether they were living in the promised land, God reviews their history and says it's all the same exact cycle, sordid cycle of sin, rebellion, and idolatry. If uh, Albert Einstein, the world-renowned physicist, no believer in God, had ever read that section, he would have understood it and concluded it as insanity. I just heard this week a famous basketball player uh, quote that definition of insanity by Einstein after his team, already mired in a slump, got blown out on, on home court and got even booed by the home fans. And I heard this quote, and it's fresh on my mind, that insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. And so first 31 verses of this passage, you might just... Um, understand it through that quote, I think it captures the situation pretty adequately. Then from verse 32 on, God is going to describe a mighty work that he's going to do. He's going to do something new, something that you and I have experienced in Jesus Christ. So the last quarter of this passage is the glorious message 
of what God will do in salvation. And if Einstein were to read that last quarter section beginning in verse 32, he would never get it because it's the gospel. And Einstein would never understand it. The brilliant physicist, apart from Christ, lost, blind, spiritually insane. And these things are spiritually discerned, but you understand it because the gospel clothes you with a right mind. So we'll spend the bulk of our time on that last section, so pay particular attention to it during our reading. And let's first pray and ask for God's blessing before we tackle Ezekiel chapter 20. Let's pray together. Oh Lord our God, we uh, come to you again as needy people, uh, but confident in your power and goodness to bless your church and ask that this morning you would bless the reading but especially the preaching of your word uh, for our edification and the converting and reviving of our souls and rejoicing of our hearts, that most of all you'd give glory to your name and exalt your beloved son in the gathering of his church. Lord, do these works in our midst, we pray. Send your Holy Spirit into our hearts and create understanding and renewed love and zeal for you. We ask these things all in Jesus' name. Amen. Ezekiel chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. In the seventh year, in the fifth month, on the tenth day of the month, certain of the elders of Israel came to inquire of the Lord and sat before me. And the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, speak to the elders of Israel and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Is it to inquire of me that you come? As I live, declares the Lord God, I will not be inquired of by you. Will you judge them, son of man? Will you judge them? Let them know the abominations of their fathers and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, On the day when I chose Israel, I swore to the offspring of the house of Jacob, making myself known to them in the land of Egypt. I swore to them, saying, I am the Lord your God. On that day, I swore to them that I would bring them out of the land of Egypt into a land that I had searched out for them, a land flowing with milk and honey, the most glorious of all lands. And I asked them, I said to them, cast away the detestable things your eyes feast on, every one of you, and do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. But they rebelled against me and were not willing to listen to me. None of them cast away the detestable things their eyes feasted on, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. Then I said I would pour out my wrath upon them and spend my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt, but I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations among whom they lived, in whose sight I made myself known to them in bringing them out of the land of Egypt. So I led them out of the land of Egypt and brought them into the wilderness. I gave them my statutes and made known to them my rules, by which if a person does them, he shall live. Moreover, I gave them my Sabbaths as a sign between me and them, that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. But the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. They did not walk in my statutes, but rejected my rules, by which if a person does them, he shall live. And my Sabbaths they greatly profaned. 
Then I said I would pour out my wrath upon them in the wilderness to make a full end of them. But I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations in whose sight I had brought them out. Moreover, I swore to them in the wilderness that I would not bring them into the land that I had given them, a land flowing with milk and honey, the most glorious of all lands, because they rejected my rules and did not walk in my statutes and profaned my Sabbaths, for their heart went after their idols. Nonetheless, my eyes spared them, and I did not destroy them or make a full end of them in the wilderness. And I said to their children in the wilderness, Do not walk in the statutes of your fathers, nor keep their rules, nor defile yourselves with their idols. I am the Lord your God. Walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules and keep my Sabbaths holy, that they may be a sign between me and you, that you may know that I am the Lord your God. But the children rebelled against me. They did not walk in my statutes and were not careful to obey my rules, by which, if a person does them, he shall live. They profaned my Sabbath. Then I said, I would pour out my wrath upon them and spend my anger against them in the wilderness, but I withheld my hand and acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations in whose sight I had brought them out. Moreover, I swore to them in the wilderness that I would scatter them among the nations and disperse them through the countries because they had not obeyed my rules but had rejected my statutes and profaned my Sabbaths and their eyes were set on their father's idols. Moreover, I gave them statutes that were not good and rules by which they could not have life. And I defiled them through their very gifts in their offering up all their firstborn, that I might devastate them. I did it, that they might know that I am the Lord. Therefore, son of man, speak to the house of Israel and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, In this also your fathers blaspheme me, by dealing treacherous with me, treacherously with me. For when I had brought them into the land that I swore to give them, then wherever they saw any high hill or any leafy tree, there they offered their sacrifices, and there they presented their provocation of their offering. There they sent up their pleasing aromas, and there they poured out their drink offerings. I say to them, what is the high place to which you go? So its name is called Bama to this day. Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, Will you defile yourselves after the manner of your fathers and go whoring after the detestable things? When you present your gifts and offer your, up your children in fire, you defile yourselves with all your idols to this day, and shall I be inquired of by you, O house of Israel? As I live, declares the Lord God, I will not be inquired of by you. What is in your mind shall never happen. The thought, let us be like the nations, like the tribes of the countries, and worship wood and stone. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out, I will be king over you. I will bring you out from the peoples. I will gather you out of the countries where you are scattered with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out.
and I will bring you into the wilderness of the peoples, and there I will enter into judgment with you face to face. As I entered into judgment with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt, so I will enter into judgment with you, declares the Lord God. I will make you pass under the rod, and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. I will purge out the rebels from among you, and those who transgress against me, I will bring them out of the land where they sojourn, but they shall not enter the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord. As for you, O house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, go serve every one of you his idols. Now and hereafter, if you will not listen to me, but my holy name, you shall no more profane with your gifts and your idols. For on my holy mountain, the mountain height of Israel, declares the Lord God, there all the house of Israel, all of them shall serve me in the land. There I will accept them, and there I will require your contributions and the choicest of your gifts with all your sacred offerings. As a pleasing aroma, I will accept you when I bring you out from the peoples and gather you out of the countries where you have been scattered, and I will manifest my holiness among you in the sight of the nations. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I bring you into the land of Israel, the country that I swore to give to your fathers, and there you shall remember your ways and all your deeds with which you have defiled yourselves, and you shall loathe yourselves for all the evils that you have committed, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I deal with you for my name's sake, not according to your evil ways, not according to your corrupt deeds, O house of Israel, declares the Lord God. Well, thus far, this reading in God's most holy and inerrant and infallible word. A chapter opens in one summer in 591 BC with certain of the elders of Israel coming to Ezekiel as a prophet and sitting before him to inquire of the Lord. And God's answer to the people, repeated both in verses 2 and 3 and again in 31, I will not be inquired of by you. And these are elders that we saw back in chapter 14, verse 2 the men who have taken idols into their hearts and set the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. These are men defiled in their sin, defiling themselves with idols. They have not kept God's commandments. They have not obeyed the law. They have committed themselves to serving idols. And they come to God. They come to God to uh, know what will happen in the future, and God shuts them away. He will not let them into his counsel. What a surprising thing, perhaps, to think, because God in the Old Testament is the same God we see in the gospel, the God who issues a gospel call to sinners and says, particularly to the house of Israel, as we read in Amos chapter 5, seek the Lord and live. And here the elders, in the defilement of their sins, outwardly come to God on their own terms, to find about, out about the divine plan, and they seek the Lord outwardly, and God will not be inquired of. Instead, what God does is, through 30 first, 31 verses of this chapter, review their past and their present. 
He does that first, taking them through uh, the life of God's people in Egypt, verses 5 through 9. Then verses 10 through 17, the generation in the wilderness. Then verses 18 through 26, the second generation, the children born in the wilderness. And then finally, the generation afterwards, living in the promised land in verses 27 through 29. And the story is exactly the same. They all served the idols. They followed the gods of the nations. They did not walk in his statutes. They did not obey his rules. Even the Sabbath given to them as a sign of the covenant for them to keep holy, they profaned and treated as a holy thing and trampled underfoot. And God said again and again, my anger and wrath are aroused for your sins. In judgment, they will be brought out of the land, scattered among the nations in exile, and they will even be given over to the rules and the laws of the pagans, verse 25, by which they have no life. This is God giving them up. This is God scattering them in judgment, in exile. And what has happened in generations past, the Lord says to these elders, you are just like your forefathers. I will not be inquired of by you. The most surprising thing here, however, is that over a thousand years, the Lord stays his hand, his patient, his slow to anger. Generation after generation, the exact same story. It's only for the glory of his name that God will not consume his people and God will not put an end to the people whom he has redeemed by his name. And yet at the same time, God says, I will not be inquired of you, of by you. Now, does that ever happen to you in your own Christian life when you draw near to God to seek his face, to pray to him? Does God ever come to you and to shut you out of his presence and says, I will not be approached to by you? And the answer, of course, is not. Because we have the Lord Jesus Christ. What the psalmist has declared has come to us in the gospel where we read in Psalm 66. The psalmist saying, if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But truly, God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. And that is the gospel reality for each one of you in Jesus Christ. By grace, he has removed sin from you. The barrier has been removed. We have been reconciled. God has given you a new heart in Jesus Christ. Not only do you have the assurance of your sins forgiven, but also the newness of the new heart that only God can give to you. And in that heart, he sends his spirit to dwell and to intercede for you with the love of God poured into your heart with the spirit of adoption by whom you cry to him, Abba. Father, unlike these elders, we in Jesus Christ can boldly approach the throne of God and ask. As Jesus himself says, if you ask anything in my name, if my word dwells in you and you abide in me, I will surely do it. The one thing that you seek after and you ask, as with the psalmist Psalm 27, has come to be a reality for you in the gospel that You can inquire of the Lord in the temple and gaze upon the beauty of the Lord all the days of life in the house of the Lord. All these gospel realities looked forward to, which have now become our experience, have come in fullness in Jesus Christ. The spiritual privileges 
that we now have, but God plainly shuts these ungodly elders out of the enjoyment of that. I will not be inquired of by you. Well, what changed from now and then? It's described for us in verses 32 through 44. When the people of God, the house of Israel, was shackled in the chain of sin and idolatry and rebellion, and there's no remedy for these sinful people of Israel that can be found from within, God himself will do something. Can change happen to them? Is that why God has given the first 31 verses so that they can review the past and finally learn something from their past and turn over a new leaf so that they can approach God? The plain declaration of the gospel is absolutely not. Man is absolutely helpless in sin. But when we are yet weak, God himself will break in and do a mighty work. He is going to do something new, something that for sure he's always done in the lives of his people throughout redemptive history. But he's going to do something new, and the newness of it is found in the fact that he's going to do it with such power and efficacy and evidence and fullness through Jesus Christ that he's going to do it in such, on such a scale. He's going to do it in and through the Lord Jesus Christ so that by comparison with what was before, it will be new experience. And it is a new thing then that we see in verses 32 through 44 described and quite astonishing that although God said he will not be approached and inquired of on their own terms, and yet God still goes on speaking to these sinful people. God in his grace still speaks to them and says something utterly astonishing. Verse 32, what is in your mind shall never happen. I will not leave you to your own devices, the thought. Let us be like the nations and let us worship wood and stone. And God is going to intervene in the lives of these idol worshipers, in the lives of these rebellious sinners, and accomplish only what he can do by his power and by his grace. And what is this new thing then he's going to do? What is the gospel reality that has been ushered in for you and I through Jesus Christ? I want you to see two things uh, in the remainder of the text this morning with me. First, God says there is going to be a new exodus. You see that in verses 33 through 39. Twice you hear this, uh, this phrase, with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. The exact same words God used in the Exodus event, announcing it to Moses. This is how I'm going to deliver the people groaning under bondage to slavery in the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. I will deliver my people. And God uses the exact same formula to describe what he's about to do. That people in bondage to sin, people in slavery to idolatry, I will with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm break in and I will redeem. But you notice how God adds one more uh, dimension to this work of redemption. He says again twice, with wrath poured out, with wrath poured out, I will bring them into the wilderness of the people, verse 35, and then I will enter into judgment with them face to face. That's how God will 
accomplish this greater second new exodus. So that, as he says in marvelously in verse 37, when I bring them out, I will make you pass under the rod and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. Here, God is using a picture from shepherding. The shepherd holding out his rod and the sheep passing one by one under the rod. And the shepherd stands as a door for the sheep. And that's the way the shepherd will count his sheep and let them in. The sheep enters into the fold, thereby one by one, each chosen beloved sheep known by the shepherd, and the sheep know the uh, shepherd, and they will pass through under the rod and come into the bond of the covenant. Whenever there's an exodus, there is going to be a covenant. It happened in Moses, but in a glorious way. There is going to be a new exodus, and with it, God is going to make a new covenant. And if you don't get anything from Ezekiel chapter 20 this morning, just get this one single verse, verse 37, the picture that Jesus himself uses in John chapter 10 of the shepherd gathering his sheep into the sheepfold, passing the sheep, bringing them under the rod into the bond of the covenant. And what is exactly God speaking of in this uh, section? Of course, he's talking about what God will do in Jesus Christ. Jesus, who has come to do this glorious work of redemption for sinners. Do you remember how Jesus at the Mount of Transfiguration in Luke chapter 9, sitting with Moses and Elijah on the mountaintop, and Jesus is talking with them about the exodus that he would accomplish. And this is the work he would accomplish at the tree, the Passover lamb slain where the wrath of God would be poured out, where the judgment that belonged to the people of God for all their sins would be entered face to face when Jesus is singled out as the one sin bearer for all the people of God. When the Father singles him out and makes his beloved son to be sin and makes him to be the curse on behalf of sinners so that as a substitute, Jesus hanging on the tree would face the judgment face to face and receive on his own body and soul the wrath of God outpoured. And that's how God would accomplish this new exodus. That's how God will bring out his people, bring them scattered among the nations, bring them into the sheepfold, and bring them into the bond of the covenant. Jesus is where the wrath of God and the mercy of God meet perfectly. The cross of Jesus Christ is where justice of God and the wrath of God are perfectly satisfied and propitiated. And the grace and mercy of God towards sinners are expressed, bringing them into the covenant. And even Jesus himself says, when I am lifted up, I will gather unto me all the elect. This is a picture of Jesus gathering the sheep and bringing them one by one into the bond of the covenant. And that's something that has happened to you, believers. Do you remember these words that Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, that in him you also... What does it mean to be in the bond of the covenant? It means for you to be in Christ. In him you also, 
when you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of salvation, and you believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. God does this work now with an outstretched arm and mighty hand through the preaching of the gospel. As Christ crucified is proclaimed, as people believe the message, they are brought into the Lord Jesus Christ and sealed with the Holy Spirit. And God binds you to himself with cords of love as you respond to the gospel. And by that binding, he makes you his own. You are bought with a price, Paul says. You are brought into this bond of the covenant so that you are not your own. You are his, and he is yours. And the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life is a bond of the covenant which nothing can sever. The seed of God abides in you, and the word of God abides in you. Here is the reality of the new exodus, the redemption that has come upon you through the shedding of the blood. And that's the glorious thing, new thing that God will do to gather his people out of this slavery to idolatry into the devotion and love that are called for in the bond of this covenant. And notice what this um, covenant is producing among them. Verse 38, it'll be a holy people that God will uh, create. I will purge out the rebels from among you. Those who transgress against me, I will bring them out of the land, but they shall not enter the land of Israel. Ultimately, God has in view not the physical land, but the kingdom of heaven, the land of glory. And as people believe in the Lord Jesus, one by one, hearing the voice of the shepherd, they are brought into the bond of the covenant. And again, if you don't remember anything, remember just that one verse, that you have come under the shepherding rod of your great Savior, Jesus Christ, in the preaching of the gospel, and you responded in faith and repentance. Uh, God himself has joined and united you to Jesus Christ in this bond of the covenant, which nothing in the whole creation is able to break. And that's how God will save sinners and transgressors from sins and idolaters of their hearts. And God has indeed brought you into that covenant. Now, what does this all mean to you? What difference does it make? Well, in one verse, uh, God reveals to us what it means for believers, every member of the Christian church, to live. And that's given in verse 33, where God says, with an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out, I will be king over you. If you are bound to the Lord in this covenant bond, that means God has begun to be your king. Does your life truly tell out the reality that Jesus Christ is your king? Do you live at the dictate of Jesus' commandments? Do you willingly submit to Jesus Christ, your Savior who has loved you and gave himself up for you? Generation after generation, nothing in the Old Testament that can ever break the cycle and chain of idolatry. And here God says, I will come and I will do it. Over and over again, God has said to them, giving them rules and the laws, don't do it and don't do it. I told you not to do it. And they did it over and over and over again in this cycle of insanity. 
And God comes and says, I will, with a mighty hand and outstretched arm, accomplish this redemption in this new exodus, giving them the new covenant so that they may all know that I am the Lord. I will give them the spirit so that from the heart they will begin to obey the law. I will be a king over them. Interesting in James chapter 1, the letter of James, how James describes the commandments of God as the royal law, the law of the king that gives us perfect liberty. It is what it mean, that is what it means to live in the kingdom of God, that God who saved you has become your king and he is bringing you more and more into the intimacy of this covenant fellowship. I am yours and you shall be mine. And everyone in this room, do you enjoy that reality? For us to enjoy that reality, for us to brought into this bond of fellowship, we need someone who can bear for us once for all the wrath and the judgment. Someone who can gather us when we are scattered and lost and helpless sinners who have no power to break the bonds of a sin and idolatry, hearing the voice of the shepherd brought into Jesus Christ as the refuge and living under his kingship. And God says, I will be king over you and you shall be mine. Oh, brothers and sisters, what a glorious thing God has done for you in the gospel. Uh, you have become his people. You have known God to be your king. And your lives, more and more transformed, begin to tell out who your king is in this world. So that's the first thing we see in this chapter. And the second thing, along with the new Exodus, God will do in verses 39 through 44 is that God will create a new worship. Not only will God bring his people into the bond of the covenant, but God says in verse 40, he will also bring all of his people, all the house of Israel, onto my holy mountain. What will happen on that holy mountain? Well, it will going to be a new worship. It will going to be the new worship. Not a polluted uh, worship that the old covenant people generation after generation brought to God, but it will be pure worship that God himself will create. Now, what the elders of Israel hearing these words would have in mind is, of course, absolutely physical reality. The temple in Jerusalem called the Mountain Heights of Israel, that mount of the house of the Lord where God would dwell with his people, where God would be worshipped. And yet what Ezekiel is looking forward to is far greater than just the rebuilding of the temple. That God himself will gather his people and there on that mountain, verse 40, God himself will accept them. Not just the gifts and offerings and sacrifices they bring, but verse 41, I will accept you as a pleasing aroma. You will be acceptable and you will be accepted. You will be able to offer worship that is truly pleasing in my sight. And it is going to be the things I require 
that you will bring. Verse 41 and verse 42. It is going to be the worship that as I commanded and not on your own devices as previous generation look everywhere and look for every leafy tree and every high hill where they would worship God. But it is going to be at the appointed place and it is going to be the worship that I require that they will bring and it is going to be on my holy mountain. It is going to be acceptable and pleasing worship. Well, this is a new covenant reality, is it not? We are on that mountain this morning, brothers and sisters. Jesus Christ, the temple of the Lord, a meeting place appointed for God and sinners to meet where worship would be offered, is that place where sinners may draw near and offer to God acceptable worship. And the question is, is our worship truly acceptable to God? Is what we are doing this morning truly pleasing to God? Is what you are bringing with the whole of your heart Are you acceptable to God as an offering, as a pleasing aroma? Well, notice the gospel reality embedded in this section. Uh, It is going to be a new worship that is acceptable because the Lord says he will also, with a new worship commanded, give a new heart. It is going to be a worship issuing from out of the heart. And there's going to be two main streams that flow from the new heart created. First, there is going to be a stream of repentance. Look down in verse 43. There, when you stand on the holy mountain, you shall remember all your former deeds and all the ways, all the evils you have committed, and you shall loathe yourself for all that you have done. Uh, You understand that we are pardoned sinners. We have been covered by the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ. We're the blessed people against whom the Lord does not count our sins. We are accepted in the blood of the Lamb. And yet as we come to God, the Lord says, we will remember our former ways, the defiled ways of evil and sin, and loathe ourselves. The very memory of sins past and forgiven will so humble our souls, and we will run to God with this kind of penitential spirit, yet joyful. Souls that mourn and yet finding joy in the Lord. These sins pardoned and wiped and clean, and yet the very memory of them will further humble us and with repentance will come into God's dwelling place to worship God. So this is going to be a pleasing worship because it'll come with a heart that is filled with repentance. But then along with the stream of repentance, notice how there is also the stream of faith. Verse 44, you shall all know that I am the Lord when I deal with you not for my name's sake, not according to your ways, but for the sake of my own name. In other words, all the worshipers on this mountain will come and know the Lord who has been gracious with them. They will believe what God has done in the Lord Jesus Christ, not treating them as sin to deserve, but God with whom there is pardon and forgiveness that he may be feared, that God who is to be believed as the Savior. They'll come to the Lord because he has not dealt with them as they deserve according to their ways, 
but God who has dealt with them abundantly according to his mercy is to be believed and through faith they'll come and worship so this is going to be also acceptable worship because all that they bring will flow out of a heart that is also filled with faith now brothers and sisters is that how you worship each and every Lord's Day by believing by repenting by embracing Jesus Christ by coming to him that rejoicing in the Lord who has given you the gift of righteousness and yet sorrowing after your sins because your sins have caused that wrath and anger and judgment to be poured out upon your Savior. You are coming to worship God with a new heart, believing in the bounty of God who has dealt with you in his covenant mercy. You're coming to God who does not change and who will not change in his grace and love. So worship in this new covenant temple, the new worship God will create on this holy mountain will come out of a heart that repents and believes in Jesus Christ. And this is a reality that has always existed down through generations. Why do you think Cain's worship in Genesis 4 was rejected while Abel's worship was accepted? The same dynamic of faith and repentance. And here, a prophet Ezekiel is seeing a day when on God's holy mountain, all the people of God will gather together and they themselves will be accepted having been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb, having been made new by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, and they themselves will be a pleasing aroma to God. Do you have that confidence this morning? Do you have that confidence whenever you come to worship the Lord, that your worship is acceptable and that which God requires and seeks from you? The passage shows you that worship is really important to God. Worship is the most important thing happening in this universe. Worship is the most important thing that you do in your weekly schedule. What happens at 10.20 a.m. here and 6 p.m. on this very day is something that God has procured by the shedding of the blood of his Son. His people brought to him as acceptable offerings to him and his people bringing what he himself requires out of a heart made new. And that's new covenant worship, faith and repentance through Jesus Christ, glorying in our God who has not dealt us as our sins deserve. And God says, I will bring them in the bond of the covenant on my holy mountain that they may know that I am the Lord, that my name will be glorified that I may manifest my holiness among them. Out of the new heart, what are the sacrifices and praise um, offerings that we bring? The Lord says, bring sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving for a contrite heart and a humble soul God will not despise. That's the way God's people have always worshipped. And since the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, That's the worship that explodes onto the scene throughout this world. And God's name will be made uh, great among the nations. Listen to these words. Uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that some were homosexual offenders and idolaters 
and all manner of sinners, such were some of you, but now you are washed. You are sanctified. You are justified in the name of the Lord Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And as we read in Romans chapter 15, even the Gentiles, Gentiles has become offerings to the Lord, acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Well, that's what God is always about. He has accomplished a new exodus, bringing people out of the bondage of sin into the bond of the covenant. He is creating new worship, bringing people on the mount of the Lord through Jesus Christ, the gathering of God's people to worship our God with faith, with repentance, with hearts made new, sorrowing after sin, trusting in Christ and in him only and always and alone. That's a heart that rejoices in God, heart that is filled with gladness and thankfulness, and that's the heart with which we worship God. And the question is, how do you then get that heart? How do you get this heart that God finds acceptable, out of which acceptable worship uh, springs? Well, you come and ask him. You cannot get it from you, for yourself. You cannot get it by your efforts. You come and ask for his mercy in Jesus Christ, and he's the one, he's the one who will grant you a new heart. And he's the one, by his mercy, will not turn away all those who seek him. The elders of Israel were turned away from the Lord. The Lord now says in the gospel, Seek me, seek me with all of your heart, and I will be found by you. I will answer you from on high, and you will glorify my name. Well, that's the secret to the new covenant mercy. Jesus Christ took away our wrath. Jesus Christ reigns on high, and Jesus sends his spirit to us. Well, may he produce within us that which is his due and which is our delight, even his worship. Let's pray together.